This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. A report out yesterday from Ontario's financial watchdog says the province is on track to balance the budget by 2023-24 and run a $7.1 billion surplus three years later. Now, you'd think the PCs would be crowing about that, exclaiming that this shows how they are such good financial managers. But as Financial Accountability Officer Peter Weltman pointed out, this could change very soon depending on how much more cash they spread around ahead of the election, which is just weeks away. And I would really like to know how they arrived at these positive numbers. Was it, as the opposition has charged, the result of cuts. So let's get to it from the non-partisan numbers guy, Peter Weltman, Ontario's financial accountability officer, joins me now. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Libby. Happy to be here. Thank you. So first of all, were you surprised when you saw this uh, possibly quick return to balance? Oh, yeah. Like I've just it really blew my mind. I mean, if I had come on two years ago and said to you, in May of 2020, when everything was shutting down, when gasoline was at 62 cents a liter, when oil futures were in negative territory, that we would be running a $7 billion surplus in 2026-27, I think you guys would have, you know, people would have looked at me and said, what planet is he from? So yes, it's been a huge change. And the reason, the biggest reason for it is on the revenue side. So what happened ultimately is that all levels of government, but especially the federal government, came through with a ton of money to help individuals and businesses cope with the sudden you know, drop in the economy. And as we're coming out of the pandemic, people had a lot of money, a lot of, not everybody, but a lot of people had a lot of money saved up. Businesses ended up protecting a lot of their profits. So tax revenues and sales tax revenues went way up, way higher than we were forecasting two years ago. Is part of that, uh, it's kind of good news, bad news, but is part of that because we've had such high inflation? Part of it is because we've had high inflation. So tax revenues are largely forecast based on what we call nominal GDP. So that means how fast is the economy growing with inflation accounted for? And that is large, that's driving a lot of the, uh, the increase in revenues, but also probably actually more so is just the overall volume of activity of uh, economic activity. I mean, people are, you know, we, we have unemployment rates that are uh, the lowest they've ever been. A lot of people are back to work. vast majority. Uh, the economy really is on a tear, and then you add inflation on top of that. That makes for an extraordinary period of high tax revenues. Mm-hmm. Now, in the past, uh, I think both you you have noted and the opposition says that Part of the reason that uh, the the ledger looks so good is that there was a pandemic relief money that wasn't spent and that there were effective cuts in, in health and education. Have you found that? So we at the moment, we have just been forecasting out what the next five years look like. And our assumptions are based on current spending patterns. And what we're finding on the current spending is that we, we assume it'll it'll remain as is. You know, we take out the pandemic spending because that was a one-off piece. So spending will go up, um, and it'll especially go up in healthcare, largely because of all the money being put into long-term care, both building beds, increasing uh, wages, and uh, and on hiring more folks and providing more hours of service. So we're going to see a bit of a bump in that. And everything else kind of remains on track. What we do find in this report is that uh, spending per capita will drop slightly over the towards the end of the of the five year period, and I think that's largely because of the inflation 
the inflation factor, that uh, a lot of the government's expenses are not at the moment tied to inflation. So there are some wage restraint bills in place, Bill 124 being one of them that keeps wages to 1%. Um, <clears throat> the doctors signed a recent agreement for OHIP payments, and those payments come in at lower than the current inflation rate. So yes, there, there will be uh, you know a, a slight real drop in uh, per capita spending. Well, uh, according to your projections, spending will grow at an average of 3.6%, and that is lower than the rate of inflation at the moment. That's right. That's exactly right. So we do expect inflation to start to return to normal in the outer years of the forecast. We expect the higher rates of inflation to be with us for another couple of years. And then we expect that to start to trend downwards as supply chains start to recover, as, um, you know, maybe the oil price shock that we're experiencing right now starts to to diminish as more supply comes online. Um, hopefully, you know, the war in the Ukraine uh, is not still with us in two years from now to the same intensity that it is. So there are these other risks that, that are there. But yes, overall, we expect inflation to start to come back down very much. Mm-hmm. So inflation will start to come down. What, where do interest rates fit in all of this? You know, we just had a half a percentage hike today, and we've been warned that it, they have to go higher to fight this yeah. inflation. We're expecting higher interest rates. We're expecting interest rates to go up by a full percentage point this year. And we've already seen a half point move today. So we may all, we may be a little, you know, maybe we're a little light on that. We'll have to wait and see. But we do expect rates to climb <clears throat> over the next five years. Um, actually, a little shorter period of that, partly to combat the uh, the increased inflation rate and the overheating of the, uh, well, not overheating, but the very, very strong uh, market right now that's hitting capacity. So that is factored into our projection. Yeah, so, I mean, I am expecting that uh, the opposition will say that these are effective cuts because spending is at a rate less than inflation, uh, that they are effective cuts. I know you're not a political guy, and you yourself has, have pointed out that all of this could change depending on how much money is promised in the election. And, of course, the question is, is all money promised in the election actually delivered? Well, the great question. So that's what we, as you know, I'll reiterate again. This is the forecast right now. This is the baseline going into the election. I'm really happy that because the government delayed its normal budget date, normally it would have had a budget out by uh, by mid March, <clears throat> and normally we would have followed up with our own assessment. Because of the way things worked out, we're able to get ahead of things. So we're able to provide. MPPs and citizens and voters with a clean picture as to here's what the next five years looks like. Um, and whatever happens between now and the election, whatever promises have been promised, whatever gets passed, that, that gets added to or subtracted from the bottom line. So, you, you know, your point about um, do promises get delivered? Well, that's a very good question. Um, but I think at this point, we'll see what the promises are. And we've included a table in our report to help people calculate the cost of some of these promises. Oh, that's uh, that's that's uh, very helpful. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Yes. <clears throat> right now, we're looking pretty good as a province. The economy looks very strong. The fiscal situation is has dramatically improved and has been much stronger than anybody ever expected from two years ago. But going forward, we still have challenges. So not only do we have short-term risks with potentially inflation, supply chains, wars, etc., you know, maybe future pandemics, but we are in a province that is aging. And as people get older, they do become less productive. They do produce less from an economic point of view, and they consume more healthcare. So once we get past 20, you know, basically 2930, as a report that we did a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago shows, then we start to get into a situation where we start to spend more money on programs than we're collecting in revenue. So that has to be kept in mind. Um, as we get into an election period, as voters start to see what's on offer, you know, there are all of these moving parts. There's the revenue side, the expenditure side, and we have a debt side that we have to keep on top of as well. Okay, Peter Weltman, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, 
Speaking of the election and whether uh, the conservatives will go with this uh, path to balance or whether they'll be sprinkling more money around, that's going to be our next subject. And yesterday, the two provincial opposition leaders must have been listening to our strategy panel here on Fight Back because no sooner did one of our panelists suggest that when it comes to opposition-minded voters, they will make informal decisions on who's better placed to take down the government. Well, no sooner did he say that than both Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca said this. This time, voting NDP is the way to uh, prevent Ford from being re-elected as the premier. So for the majority of people who indicate they don't want Ford to have a second term, I would urge them to to this time vote NDP. I don't think that they look at politics and they talk about strategic voting or they sit down at the dining room table or the kitchen table and uh, start to sort of slice and dice how, you know, what numbers look like from this poll or that poll. Or I don't think people in the real world do that. Well, I'm not sure about that, but let's see what our experts think. Let's go to Bob Richardson, who's a liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations, and John McCutition, who is a conservative activist and political consultant and president of the Bradgate Research Group. Hey, guys. Hello, Libby. So, uh, Bob, first of all, what, what do you make of this direct appeal from Andrea Horvath to liberal mm-hmm. voters saying, vote for me, I can take Doug Ford down? Well, she's doing what she should be doing as a leader. She needs to expand the pie if she's got a chance to hold her seats and make gains. Uh, the only way she's going to do that is if she makes you know inroads among the liberal vote. I think uh, the conservative vote is fairly happy with the government. There may be some available. Uh, and there may be some greens available, but the biggest, uh, her biggest path to the premier, uh, premier's office goes right through the Liberal Party. So she's doing what she needs to do to uh, to try to build up her coalition and uh, and also protect her base. John McCutchen, uh what do you think? Do you agree that uh, the non-Doug Ford voters are are weighing who is better placed to take down the government? I think that becomes an increasing dynamic over time from where it was an academic idea many years ago. Uh, but but I'd agree with uh, Del Duca that I don't think it's the, you know, uh, in, anywhere near the dominant uh, um, calculation that the NDP would love. Uh, you know, uh, Andrea's, uh, you know, fighting a war on two fronts as she mounts her farewell tour in this uh, upcoming campaign. I, I don't think she's announced a farewell tour. Well, I mean, it's, it's she. She's not going to be around after this one, you know, unless she becomes premier. And uh, I don't know anybody who's taking money on that bet. But for for her, she's got a government that, uh, despite the pandemic and despite um, you know uh, all the people who hate Ford, uh, he's done a reasonably good job, and the, and the the province economically is in a pretty good place. And uh, subject to him, uh, the only wild card for me is if he brings back another mask mandate, then I think uh, everything's uh, off the table. But uh, unless that happens, which I don't think it will, uh, she's fighting a, a reasonably competent conservative government on one side. And the reality of a new liberal leader who's facing his first election, uh, which is always a challenge for any new leader, but uh, she's also remembering that she half of her vote in the last election, what propelled her into opposition status, was liberals who said uh, goodbye to Kathleen Wynne. And that's over. That's done. So do those people go home to the Liberal Party, in which case Andrea's uh, seats get uh, decimated and more? Or do they say, we, we like the job she's been doing? And, you know, uh, like the last election was an aberration. And I, I think most people are predicting that the numbers are going to be closer to what they've been traditionally, which means she's going to lose a lot of seats unless she can come up with a with a novel way of telling people, keep this person in place. Uh, Bob, do you think that making this kind of really direct appeal for liberal voters, uh, does does that smack a little bit of desperation? 
No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think she's doing what she needs to do as a party leader. Uh, I, I agree uh, with uh, with John and, and Del Duca that I don't think this is on people's radar screen at this point. As the campaign goes forward, uh, it will be. I, I'm, I'm not a, a bad uh, example of this. I live in the riding of University Rosedale. It will either go liberal or it will go NDP. It went NDP last time. The conservatives, demographically, it's a tough riding for them. Uh, and they traditionally run third here. Um, there's a very good, strong liberal candidate here. There's an NDP incumbent uh, who, you know, appears to be working hard now. Um, I think if the liberals get any wind in their sails, uh, they will pick up this seat. If they don't, and if Andrea looks like she's the alternative to the Ford government, the new Democrat will get reelected. There's about 15 seats like that that she holds out of her 40 right now. Um, so the Liberals could either pick off 10 to 15 seats from her, uh, or if they don't have a good performance in the campaign, end up with zero. Well, it's interesting that you say that, because I think the situation is basically the same in my writing, which is St. Paul's. which went, It's exactly the same in St. Paul's. Which went NDP last time, and which has, uh, I think, a very strong candidate, uh, though I've said he's a geriatrician, and I think we need geriatricians more than we need politicians. Yeah. But having said that, uh, there's also a tradition of doctors getting elected in St. Paul's. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think, very much the same situation. Sorry, go ahead, John. There's a series of my writing. writing. Sorry, John, go ahead. Sorry, John. Uh, my riding of Hamilton West Ancaster Dundas uh, currently has an NDP or for only the second time in, uh, I think, in, uh, well, certainly recent history. Uh, she defeated the, uh, you know, a liberal cabinet minister who was uh, well respected um, in the area because of the, the, the anti government sweep last time. So, you know, again, this is a riding where the conservative is vote pretty stable, doesn't really go up or down. The question is, does that NDP big gains from the last election stay because people are happy with who they elected, or does it go back to the traditional liberal base where those those were liberal voters? And I and I don't think uh, that Andrea's done a good enough job to hang on to the to about 800,000 voters across Ontario that uh, you know switched from liberal to NDP last time. I don't think she's going to hold them. So, Bob, do you think that the Liberals could end up in second place? Yeah, I think it's entirely possible that that could be uh, the case. And quite frankly, uh, look, every party thinks they have a shot at forming government. I'm sure the Liberals do, too. Let's let's say it's 10 percent for them. The truth is they will not be forming the government next time out. A win for the Liberal Party would be to get between 25 and 35 seats. That's the high end. Uh, and they live to fight another day. They need this election to get back in the ring. The last election was the worst performance for the Ontario Liberal Party since Confederation. So that's what Stephen Del Duca needs to uh, fix going forward. So, uh, so you know, I think this is probably a two-step dance here. One is to get back on the dance floor. We're not on it right now. We're not an official party at the Ontario legislature and then uh and then we can uh try some other dance steps when we're uh when we're back i i also want to say i agree with john about those eight hundred thousand votes i like andrea horvath but it's been an uninspired uh, official opposition and if you take a look at the names of 15 or 20 of those mpps in her caucus it literally is like they're in the witness protection program (laughs) you have not heard of these people here in Toronto, uh, you hear of maybe one or two. Merritt Stiles is a very good MPP from uh, Davenport, who's a new Democrat. Uh, there's one or two others. Other than that, you've never heard a word about any of these people. So, I mean, I think it's going to be tough to hold on to those 800,000 voters when that is one of the realities. Hmm, yeah. And one thing I, I will say for the liberals, they, they seem to have been very good about recruiting some very yeah. high quality candidates. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's what, you know, particularly given their situation, 
This is a party that doesn't even have official party status in the legislature right now. New unproven leader and going in. He's done a good job recruiting candidates, and he's got a pretty decent team across the province, uh, 50% of which are, are, are women candidates, too, as well. So uh, kudos to him on that point. Can he get elected? That's the big question. And, uh, and you know, given the situation where he starts, it's going to be tough. John, you were about to say something. Well, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, uh, yeah, he, he's had an interesting uh, group of candidate selections, but uh, let's also be clear, he doesn't hold a seat in the legislature right now. Uh, the Conservatives uh, would hate to lose their current cabinet minister and Tobolo to him. But uh, they, they half would like to uh, have uh, Del Duca elected, so they have him around for four years. Um, There's some of the people that have run. Uh, for example, it's uh, not a very well kept secret in Barrie that the current mayor of Barrie is uh, running for uh, the Liberals up there because uh, he believes that Del Duca is going to lose and that he's going to be running for Liberal leader. So it's it's going to be fascinating on election night what the stories are. Uh, for the next two or three years. Well, yeah, and uh, yesterday we heard speculation. Uh, Kristen Wong Tam is running for the NDP that she uh, it, might have an eye on the leadership, as would Merritt Stiles. I, I, I think realistically, between now and the next election, uh, you know, so in the next four years, we're going to see, uh, in all likelihood, there's like an eighty percent chance that three political parties are going to be having leadership conventions. Three? Uh, you think Doug Ford as well? I, I think, uh, yeah, I think he'll decide the two terms is enough. Uh, I have a question about the PCs, John, and, and they're losing some very high-profile people in Christine Elliott, Rod Phillips. Uh, and the only high-profile name that I've heard running for them is, is the former police chief, Mark Saunders. Yeah, it, it, it's harder to recruit new people in situations where you've got such strong bench strength already. Um, uh, you know, I was commenting uh, with a friend yesterday uh, that this uh, current government's got uh, kind of, I think, uh, I have to check the stats, but it's pretty close to setting two new records. Almost a record low number of by-elections uh, in its four years, but by the same token, uh, a record number of former members that are sitting on the opposite side of the house now, either being thrown out of the party or walking away from it. So, uh, Ford started with a lot of people and trying to recruit new people into a safe seat. That's already got a member is pretty hard. So, uh, last minute, uh, retirements, uh, you know, Christine, uh, Elliot is an example. Uh, may not the candidate that's replacing her may not be a household name, but I'm told is a very uh, substantive uh, person locally. So uh, you know, again, we'll see what happens on election night. Um, you know, uh, it'll be an interesting election night for the 15 minutes uh, between the time polls close and uh, <laughs> the machines give us the actual result. <laughs> Oh, come on. It'll be interesting longer than that. Bob, do you think that those that that will hurt the PCs? I mean, again, uh, you know, I see one new star candidate. You know what? Honestly, I think it's fairly minor in the grand scheme of things. I think what happens, too, is when a government gets in after it's been in opposition for a while and does one term, a lot of the senior people want to leave because she hasn't been there for four years. She's been there for 15 she did go out for a short period of time. So that's a big chunk of your life. And uh, it certainly happened under the McGinty government. If you took a look at his front bench uh, from one election to the next, there were some fairly substantial changes there. And he was reelected with a, uh, with a majority. So I, I'm not overly fussed by it. I don't think it shows, a, uh, shows that much. I think for a lot of people, they frankly just want to get on with their lives. They've done their public service and they want to move on to another stage in their careers. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doubt, I'm not doubting that. I'm just uh, wondering if uh, the voters will say, "Hey, the people we thought did a really good job, some of them are gone, and who's there now?" You know, I think he's still got a number of very good cabinet ministers who are there. Uh, Peter Bettencolny, the uh, finance minister, is kind of from central casting in that job. Uh, he seems quite solid. Uh, I think Monty McNaughton has been an exceptionally good minister and a, and a good minister of labor. And I'm saying this as a liberal, uh, particularly on the skills side. I think he's done a very good job. He, he can, you can point to five or six good people running again 
who are in the, in that cabinet who can provide the core of the government. Um, I, I think they're in relatively good shape on that issue. Okay. Uh, we'll take a call from Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hi, Larry. Thanks for taking my call. First, if you don't mind, I'd love to give a huge shout-out to Jane Brown. She's an amazing newswoman, and Zoomer Media is fortunate to have her on the team. Oh, we agree. <laughs> okay. Um, during the start of the pandemic, Andrea Horvath, she's come out and she's criticized, and she's done all this stuff, but I haven't read, heard any real concrete suggestions on what she would have done. And right now she's got her own problems with um, some of her own candidates, one in Hamilton and the other one up in uh, Brampton North. Uh, She actually has made some concrete suggestions, but I think, uh, you know, maybe that's not what people remember. And and you're right. Um, uh, As somebody uh, yesterday referred to the sausage making of politics, Ron, thanks for your call. Uh, we're getting to the end of this segment. So uh, what would you like to leave us with, starting with John? Uh, it, it's kind of fascinating for the crazy uh, uh, world we've lived in in the last two years. Uh, we're 51 days away from an election, and uh, it's kind of way quieter than you would expect. And I think that kind of uh, favors the government. And having said that, there's 51 days for the premier or the government to make some colossal mistake and uh, the table be turned upside down. So we'll wait and see. Bob. Uh, I'm, I'm old school. Uh, uh, many years ago, 51 days before an election, I was uh, about to work for premier Lynn McLeod. That did not work out uh, the way that uh, we had it planned. Mike Harris ended up uh, whooping us and went on uh, to become premier and was elected two terms. So my only point in saying that is, Stay tuned. A lot happens in politics. A lot can change. Uh, I suspect this government will get uh, get reelected in some form or another. Uh, but who will be the official opposition and who gets that number of seats to be determined? And elections matter. And that's coming up real soon. Well, Bob, just before we go, I was at that election of Lynn McLeod. And I read, I, you were you were uh, that's right. You were up uh, covering us. I was covering it for City TV. And just before I got the assignment, maybe three <laughs> weeks before. And my boss said to me, Lib, we'll let you be with the next premier this time. <laughs> So, well, I'm sorry I let you down on that one, Libby. Okay, yes. Well, sometimes uh, lose, the losers are a better story. <laughs> but anyway, uh, thank you so much, John McIntyre and Bob Richardson. Thanks, guys. Okay, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about, I think, a very important issue, and it is food waste. The amount of food we waste is shocking. It can be up to 58% of all the food that's produced in Canada is wasted. For uh, an average household, it can come to $1,100 a year. And it's a shame. People are food insecure. We're going to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. How much food do you waste? Do you buy too much, especially during the pandemic when we tried to cut back on the number of shopping trips? Do you plan your meals? Do you store your food properly? Well, here's an eye-popping number that could make you get with the program. It's estimated that avoidable food waste costs the average Canadian household over $1,100 a year. And for the country as a whole, the thinking is that up to 58% of all the food produced is lost and wasted with 11.2 million tons going to landfills. That is huge. And Canada's food industry produces a very, very large amount of this surplus that goes to waste. And the other side of the ledger is that 5.6 million Canadians are food insecure. So I want to hear from you. Do you waste food? I'm sure everybody does. Or what do you do to avoid it? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. 
And let's go to Lori Nickel, who is the CEO of Second Harvest, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, and Victor Plange, the Head of Marketing at Too Good To Go. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having us. Okay. Well, well thank you. Thank uh, you. Let us begin with Lori. You unveiled part of a new report yesterday. What did you find? Well, I'll just go back to 2019 when we did the report on the avoidable crisis of food waste that you were speaking to, where we identified 58% of all the food produced for Canadians is lost or wasted. And that's from farm to household. The report we launched yesterday was really looking across the supply chain industry-specific to determine how much of that surplus edible food could we actually get into the hands of people. So we know we have 61,000 charities and nonprofits in this country. How do we make sure that this great food is getting there instead of landfill or other places? Because that's its intended purpose. Where we learned that only 4% is, re- is being redirected. And so we really have an opportunity here to move a lot more of this great food into the hands of Canadians that really need it right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Charlebois, what is preventing us from doing that or preventing the industry from doing that to a greater extent? Uh, well, first of all, I think we needed a report like uh, the one we saw yesterday uh, from Second Harvest, uh, putting numbers to a problem. I think the report was actually quite powerful and telling uh, about the problem. Now, uh, I mean, I was, I, I didn't even know how much food was not rerouted or how much of the surplus we actually weren't saving or rescuing. It's, uh, it's pretty incredible. 96% is a lot of food. And so I think what needs to happen, of course, uh, is, uh, is to think about, first of all, to know about the problem, measure it. And that's what we did with, with, yesterday's report now we need a strategy and and i think a lot of it is already in the report including better logistics uh better technologies related to packaging and and more awareness essentially with uh, with industry as well uh victor plonja too good to go uh does uh tries to tackle that problem. It's an app and uh, you can get discounted food that is about to, I wouldn't say expire, but about to get to its best before date. So uh, how much have people accepted that? I've seen in supermarkets, though, also kind of enjoy tonight. Uh, How far have you gone in terms of getting people to uh, accept that? Um, well, whether we look at it on a global scale or we look only in, at Canada, um, I think it's safe to say that we've, we've come a very long way um, to solve that major problem that, that Laurie spoke uh, very well to. Globally, we have about 55 million people who've downloaded the app, um, which, is, which is an incredible number across 17 markets. But more importantly for, uh, for those of us on the call here and for Canada, um, since we launched it nine months ago, um, there's more than 350,000 Canadians who've actually downloaded the app. There's more than 2,500 food businesses across Canada that have done this, um, that have also signed up. So that means local restaurants, bakeries, grocery stores, um, juice bars, hotels, et cetera, et cetera. So, so all in all, uh, we've been very well accepted in, in Canada. Lori Nickel, uh, it, it's still, it, it's pretty staggering when you see that's sort of 4%. Is is that the the part of the ledger where things can improve? Absolutely. Like so, again, we're just talking about supply chain, which is farm to hotel or restaurant. The household, there's a lot of work to do, but Second Harvest are really focused further up that supply chain, and so we have to provide businesses with some tangible financial benefits to ensure that they can get this food to charities and nonprofits. There's a real misconception around legal liability. In Canada, you know, we are covered by legislation in every province and territory that you can donate food in, in good faith and you'll never get sued and nobody ever has been anyway in Canada or the U.S. So there's also some regulatory and um, industry policies that are preventing donations. So I think to Sylvain's point, you know, just measuring it first, providing some solutions to industry, 
should have some really marketable benefits, and we should be able to move the lever now that we know how big the problem is. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois, uh, would it be a tax credit of some sort? I would say so. I mean, first of all, on the legal side, uh, Maury's right. There's a lot of misconceptions related to legal responsibilities, uh, and uh, and so there. So companies are protected in that way. Secondly, I agree. Uh, I, I think we need to provide some fiscal incentives during COVID. Uh, the federal government was actually very generous in helping out uh, food banks and, and different organizations and helping out people. But uh, we need more sustainable solutions without uh, without relying on financial support, on some financial support coming from the federal government or provincial governments. So, I mean, we can go only go so far with public money. And we need to think of ways to, to get the industry to uh, move forward on this as quickly as possible and work with organizations like Second Harvest has been in in this business since 1985. I mean, they they know how to rescue food. And uh, I I think we need to rely on these organizations in order to repurpose food to help support the people who actually need the food, affordable foods. Okay, uh, we've got to take a break. When we come back, I would like to talk about the other side of this, and that is uh, people people at home. And once the food gets to the store or the restaurant, what can they do to avoid waste? And also whether it's become worse during the pandemic, because I suspect that it has. Before we go to break, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We're talking about food waste, and Second Harvest is out with a report about the waste of food produced by the food industry and at the top of the supply chain. But I also want to talk about food that we all waste or food that is wasted once it gets to a food store or a restaurant. Uh, or a takeout, whatever it is, or to your fridge, and what we can do to cut down on that. And I think it's probably become worse during the pandemic, as people have tried to cut back on the number of shopping trips, so buying more and maybe not necessarily getting to eat more. Uh, Lori Nichol, do you have a, a view of that? I think Dr. Charlebois would have a better one. He's done the research on it, so I'll pass it over to him. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think we're actually looking at a new era of food rescuing. And, uh, I mean, the food rescuing term I I really like. uh, I think it was coined by Second Harvest. I'm not sure, but uh, I'll I'll say that uh, because I think it's it's, uh, them that really started this this, – this approach, because food waste, uh, there is a bit of a negative tone to it. Waste means that uh, outcomes are worthless, but food rescuing would suggest that the food, the surpluses, are actually worth something. There's an economic value. So we've had institutions in the past uh, in Canada uh, doing some food rescuing like Second Harvest as an example, but What's interesting right now is that more and more consumers themselves are being more empowered by applications like Too Good to Go, for example, to actually rescue food themselves. So on the supply side, uh, supply chain uh, side of things, you do have uh, organizations that know what they're doing. But on the other hand, more and more consumers have access to solutions to reduce waste as much as possible. And I'm not sure we're getting, we're, I think we're getting some traction, but I don't think it's happening fast enough. Yeah. And then there's this whole business about how to read best before dates. And we're being told, well, best before does not mean expired. So, uh, you know, how long past a best before date would you use, for instance, some chicken? 
And what about getting those enjoy tonight uh, things from the supermarket or something for that matter from too good to go? I mean, it's, it's a matter of kind of changing attitudes, I guess. Uh, uh, Victor Flange? Victor, are you there? I am definitely here. Just uh, eagerly listening to you. Um, it is it's definitely a matter of uh, of changing attitudes, and I agree with what's been what's been said that we are just scratching scratching the surface. Um, and going back to to your uh, first question about you know what has the pandemic really meant to food waste? I think there are definitely negatives. Like you know we see evidence of shopping more, greater bulks, people. Uh, feeling at, at risk and therefore want to make sure they don't run out of food. But I think there are definitely also positives. Um, what we've found is that there are more than 40% of people report that they actually do more pre-shop planning during the pandemic. About 40% cook more creatively and 30% uh, say they actually used more leftovers during the pandemic as, as opposed to before. So as, as two good to go, we always try to overcome that negative tone uh, that we just that we just heard about when it comes to food waste and look at it positively. We believe there's more, there's simply more impact in talking about food waste in a positive way. Not to shy away from it, but talking about the solutions rather than, than the problems. Um, so I think there's a, there's a great example. There are actually positive things happening and I hope, I hope it's true that we are, we're entering a new era. Well, the, the other aspect of the pandemic, you know, I think that people, a lot of people who were okay financially, we were keen to support restaurants with takeout. And I don't know if other people find this, but what I find is that when it comes to takeout, in our household, there's a lot more waste than, than you know, stuff that, that we buy. Does, the, does that sound accurate, Lori? I think there is waste everywhere. I can't help but see it. But I, I actually just want to go back to your best before dates because I think you nailed it, right? There is this, this perception that best before means bad after, and it certainly doesn't. In Canada, there are only five foods that expire, five, and they are based on the nutritional content of them. So if you have a baby and you have formula, make sure that that doesn't pass expiry date or senior insured products, and it's really based on that nutrition. So all food so everybody knows this, can be frozen. So if you're going shopping and you see that it's due today, all every piece of meat in my freezer says 50% off because I buy it that day and throw it in the freezer. And it can last up to a year, most of these things. So, I mean, shameless plug, but Second Harvest has all the best before dates, so how long your food will last if, you, if it's canned, if it's frozen, so that you know uh, how long it will last and you can ensure that you're not wasting it. So that's the same for restaurant food. If you can't finish it, throw it in the freezer. The concern with when you're doing takeout is always about temperature control. So just make sure you're being safe with your food and it's not, you know, getting into dangerous situations where you're creating bacteria that might harm you. But otherwise, all foods, throw it in the freezer, save yourself some money. Uh, and there's also, uh, I guess, another myth that once you defrost something, you can't refreeze it, and you can, under certain circumstances, safely refreeze. Mm-hmm. That's true, but I also be careful because, again, we're talking about food safety and temperature control. So just make sure you do a bit of research before you do anything that might compromise you guys. Sylvain Charlebois, how much of a mindset pivot do we need to really make a dent in this waste problem? Well, it's, it's, it's more, uh, it's really about education related to food safety. Uh, in fact, I mean, Canada, uh, according to The Economist, Canada was ranked number one in the world uh, when it comes to food safety uh, in general, managing food safety risks. So we're doing very well. Uh, now, the legacy of all that is that we actually scared a lot of people <laughs> Uh, people don't know much about uh, you know food safety. They just rely on information given to them. Uh, I just want to use it as an example of what just happened in January in the UK. Morrison's actually has decided to scrap use by dates on milk products, dairy products, in favor of the sniff test. So basically, they're asking their customers uh, at the supermarket to rely on their senses. Uh, to uh, to judge whether or not a product is edible. Now, when I saw that announcement back in January, I thought, could this happen in Canada? 
my response mentally was not yet. We're not ready, but I, I think we need to get there at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I use that. Uh, I use that at home a lot <laughs> because uh, the other thing that people don't know about those dates uh, on dairy is that it, it's if the product is unopened. Mm-hmm. Once it's opened, that's a different story. Absolutely. And I would say right now I'm working with a company out of Hong Kong. They've actually developed a technology which allows food to be packaged uh, at room temperature and uh, any perishable product can be packaged with this technology uh, and survive at room temperature for up to two years. No refrigeration required. So I actually asked them to ship me two steaks from Hong Kong to Canada, ate it, filmed it, posted on social media to show to people that food safety, you know, can go a long way. I mean, there's, there are lots of technologies out there to keep our food safe. Immediately, immediately, people start to say, oh, my God, am I suicidal? I'm taking too much risks. And so you can see that really the, that we need a paradigm shift when it comes to food safety. But technologies are out there. It's amazing what the industry has done in order to keep our food safe over the years. Uh, yeah, but it, there is. I I agree. A mindset. I know that sometimes in in my fridge there's stuff, and it's like uh, I don't know. It's been there too long. <laughs> so yeah, trust your senses, Libby. Trust your senses. Well, no, like my husband will eat it. <laughs> But he says it's still good. I said, mm, I don't know. I don't know. It's been there. It's been there a little bit too long for me. And in terms of vegetables, though, fresh vegetables and fruit, also you lose the nutritional aspect of it after a certain amount of time. Though if you freeze it, it will stay. Let exactly. us let us take a call from Margaret in Kitchener. Hi, Margaret. Margaret? Oh, okay. That one didn't work. Let's hear from Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Hi, Libby. I just happened to hear this, and uh, as Laurie may know, I was a board member of Second Harvest going back uh, more than 25 years ago. It's a great organization, and anything we can do to support this organization needs to be done. And, you know, the other thought I had when you were talking, uh, gardening has become such a thing, uh, it has really taken off with the, the COVID. We should encourage young people to have what they had during the war, which were called victory gardens. This would, this would be so good if we could get people growing their own foods, which we can easily do in this climate. Okay, Pat, thanks for that. Depends how 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 much uh, how much land you have, and how much sun you have, and there are some great community gardens, which uh, I guess uh, that's a good option too. And you know what? When you when you grow your own, it is delicious. Let's hear from Kate in Toronto. Hi, Kate. Hi. I just want to make a comment that the more affluent you are, I think the more food gets wasted. If you are living at below the poverty line, you count every dollar of food and you make sure you use it. That's my experience. Well, yeah. And we want to make sure that so-called surplus food gets to people who need it. Kate, uh, thanks for that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that is... Go ahead. I, I, I don't know, sorry to interrupt, Libby, but uh, I'm not sure I agree with that statement because uh, I, I think it more, it's more about lifestyle than, than income. Uh, I actually do believe that uh, the more you travel, the more you're not home, the more likely you'll waste. Uh, so I, it, it, I'm not sure there's a strong correlation between food waste and income, but there's probably a very strong correlation between lifestyle and the amount of time you don't spend in your old kitchen versus food waste. Well, uh, I, I have a bit of a, a, a little bit of a personal story on that. So my parents went through the war and I grew up with, you know, my mother especially saving like the tiniest bits of food, which 
I also do. And then, you know, my husband sometimes would say that's worth a quarter uh, or 50 cents. And I'd sort of say, well, you know what? I don't always mind wasting money, but I do mind wasting food. Absolutely. By the way, Libby, we actually have a new gardening report coming out on April 26th. So, so we're, we measured uh, how many Canes are actually thinking of starting a garden this year and how many have actually stuck to their plans the last few years uh, gardening. And uh, do you want to give us a little hint about what you found? On April 26th, I will. Okay. Okay, you drive a tough bargain. Uh, We are almost out of time here, so let us go around the virtual table, starting with Victor. What would you like to leave us with? I would like to leave us with with a bit of hope and optimism. Um, We know that fighting food waste is the number one way that we can all fight climate change. And I think the reason why I find a lot of optimism is that everyone can do something about it, right? You don't need to buy a Tesla. You don't need to install solar panels. We all have a relationship with food. We all shop for food. We all prepare food. We all cook food. Well, some of us better than others. But at least we, we all interact with food and thereby us also with food waste every day. So we can all do something about it. I think if we all have that mindset that every little micro action, every little interaction with food, if we just improve individually, then collectively will have a mass, mass impact. Okay, uh, Sylvain Charlebois. Yeah, well, for uh, for listeners, uh, if you've been to the grocery store of late, which is probably everyone, uh, you would have noticed that there's not a whole lot of promotions going on. Uh, promotions are discouraged uh, due to uh, what uh, we're experiencing with supply chains and uh, and inflation. And so the only way, the best way to save right now is on the back end at home, reducing waste. So find a way to uh, reduce waste. Uh, uh, so there is good to go, uh, too good to go as an app. But there are other apps as well that are available. Uh, there are at least eight that I know of. Uh, and but look, look up, look up some of these apps. They're great. Okay, Lori Nickel. Last yeah. word to you. Uh, I want to. Uh, Reiterate what Victor said. I mean, the way to manage climate, and that's why Second Harvest, one of the reasons we exist, is really managing the climate crisis. This food going into landfill is a direct and really significant contributor. The last IPCC report is not great news. As much as I'd like to be optimistic, we need some public policy change. And um, if you'd like to learn more, absolutely go to Second Harvest, and we have lots of resources you can download. Okay, thank you so much, Victor Plancha, Lori Nichol, and Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Libby. All right, bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Well, uh, I am going to be off for uh, about a week, a little over a week. Jane Brown will be here, and that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.